Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, the host of the channel. Today we're talking to Michael Brenner about his new book, In Search of Israel, The History of an Idea. The book offers a history of the Zionist idea and the debate over its embodiment in 70 years of Israeli statehood. Professor Brenner, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, let me ask, uh, or open with the rude question that is often asked, with the publications of uh, such history books. Do we really need another history of the Zionist idea in Israel? Or, to put it positively, what new perspectives or perspective do you offer to study these interesting matters? You know, I thought the same before I started this project. And then I looked and realized we actually do not have a history of how the Jewish state was conceived, how it should look like, how it changed over time. We have a lot of histories of Israel, if histories of Zionism, we have a lot of histories of the conflict, of the wars. That's not what the book is about. So in a way, I thought it we need a book that shows, in a way systematically over 100 years or more, how this idea of the Jewish state developed and what were the competing concepts. Wonderful. So uh, the history of Zionism can always be a history of diplomacy or uh, realpolitik or a history of an idea. And your book does uh, a very interesting job in combining the two in a way, going from the idea to how it is uh, personified, I guess, or embodied in, in a state that is identified as a Jewish state. So I guess the question would be immediately uh, arising, what, what do you see as the main keys to understanding the history of the state. So I'm sure there are different possibilities to approach. What I found as kind of a connecting link or read like a thread through the whole history of conceiving um, this state of the Jews or Jewish state was the ongoing conflict between on the, the idea of to have a state like any other state, and finally Jews would become a nation like any other nation. And on the other hand, there is still, and in many, among many of these thinkers and politicians at the same time, the of being different and being, in fact, an exemplary state, uh, a a model state, enlightened to the nation. Jewish European yearning for normalcy to be like anyone, anybody else. But at the same time, a strong sense, a Jewish strong sense of particularism, right? Of uh, something that characterizes this body politics that is different than others. Can you maybe say a few words about how each of these uh, poles would define Israel? Sure. Uh, Let me maybe start with the story with with which I start the book. Um, It is told by Isaiah Berlin, the important philosopher from Oxford, who was a Chaim Weizmann, who was not yet 
the president of the state of Israel, because it didn't exist yet, he tells about the 1930s and he says, we're at this tea party in Oxford and a an older Christian lady approached Mr. Weizmann and said, Mr. Weizmann, how is it possible that you, the Jewish people, want to have a state which is not different than any other state? You, the people who brought about all these uh, Nobel Prize winners and all of these, you know, important people. And you want to be like Albania? <laughs> and then Isaiah Berlin's, Chaim Weizmann's head lit up like a light bulb. And he said, yes, Albania. So there is this for normal, as you said, for normalcy, um, for normality, for a normal state. And even in the a declaration of independence, it, it, it speaks about a state like an, a nation like any other nation. So this is an idea which I think we see still today when, of course, um, um, Israeli politicians also um, say, you know, we want to be measured like any other state. Uh, we do have the other concept, and that is very present from the very beginning. If you look at Theodore Herzl's writings, if you look uh, at uh, writings in the interwar period, especially Ben-Gurion's speeches and writings in the early years and decades of the state, where we always have the, well, it's not enough to be like any other state. We don't need another state with another uh, flag, set of embassies around the world. The Jewish state has a special obligation to fulfill uh, Jews cannot just have a state like any other state. Ben-Gurion often used this concept um, of, and then he also used the comparison with the prophetic language of uh, light into the nations. And so does Netanyahu in recent speeches, and so do other members of the cabinet. And there is a tension, which I think is also explicit in Israeli policies. One example uh, when Ben-Gurion in the 1950s realized uh, his ties with what was called the Third World, with African and Asian states, of course it was important for strategic reason, reasons, for economic reasons, but there was something else behind it, and he emphasized this over and over again. We have a special mission to help other emerging states. We have the means and we have the historical missions to help other states to develop. So this tension touches directly upon, I guess, the central issue, both in your book and in contemporary Israeli politics, which is the debate about or over the very meaning of Israel being a Jewish state. You hinted to it uh, at the beginning of your uh, uh, answers, I guess, when you said it's either a Jewish state or a state of Jews, which are two different uh, concepts in a sense. Um, so let me ask you the easy, I mean, it's a question that is easy to ask, but obviously hard to answer, but maybe we can start the discussion. Uh, what does it mean for Israel to be a Jewish state? It depends whom you ask. <laughs> and that was true today. And as I try to show, that was true 50 years ago and was true before the state exists years ago. Um, former um, head of the Israeli Supreme Court, Barak, said, um, Basically, a Jewish state means that we have certain Jewish symbols, like in our national anthem. We have uh, the 
Saturday, Shabbat as the holiday, not Sunday. We have Jewish holidays. We have certain values which we take. Um, and there it already gets a little bit tricky because many of the same values, which are Jewish values, and he says so, are the values of uh, modern human rights and so on. But they emerge from our biblical and uh, later rabbinical traditions. But of course, you could also <laughs> argue that a Jewish state could be something very different than this concept, which is clearly this concept, which is a Jewish and democratic state in the modern Western tradition with certain symbols and, by the way, the right of all Jews to return or to immigrate to Israel. But another concept was developed, for example, by the Orthodox, by Orthodox Jews, and that was the case before the state was founded. Uh, the first chief rabbi of Palestine, uh, Rav Kook, had a very different concept, and the first chief rabbi of Israel, Rav Herzog, had a very different concept where they clearly thought that halakha, Jewish religious laws, should play a much larger role than they actually do, and that religion should play a, 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 a very clearly stated role. Now, Israel does not have a constitution, and uh, therefore um, it, is, uh, it is still a, a, an open conflict. What exactly constitutes the values of these states. Now, you have certain basic laws which try to define some of these issues, um, but overall, I would say it is, a, it is still very confusing today for many people in Israel and outside of Israel what a Jewish state is. So this uh, issue of diverging or dif differing and sometimes conflicting answers to the question of uh, what is a Jewish state uh, is, now, is the center of the now famous... Uh, Four Tribes speech by uh, Reuven Rivlin, the Israeli president, in which he uh, basically presents a mirror to, to his audience saying, we're no longer, if we ever were, a one whole uh, national unit, but rather uh, an amalgamation of tribes with different horizons. And uh, you conclude your book with this, uh, with this speech and with this... Um, uh, outlook of uh, diverging views of Israel, and I think maybe we can discuss uh, for uh, a moment uh, two of these horizons, which are usually taken to be the polar opposites of each other. Uh, you already discussed a bit uh, the, uh, the ultra-Orthodox uh, horizon. Do you see any action towards uh, an establishment of a theocracy, of making Israel into a theocracy in, a, in an ultra-Orthodox uh, halachic manner? I, I do not. Uh, what I see is increasing influence of the Orthodox sectors because their demo, the demography is changing and they represent a larger number. What I don't see is an attempt to, to rebuild Israel as a theocracy. Uh, one of the reasons is that in that case, the ultra-Orthodox would have in fact to take responsibility and to govern. And I don't think that this is their intention. Um, so, and, and, and it's, it is a theological problem, of course. Could there be a Jewish state before the Mashiach, before the Messiah uh, will appear? Um, concepts have been transformed, especially within what we call the national religious um, faction. If you look a hundred years ago, it is very interesting to see that Mizrahi, the original Mizrahi, which was the religious, national, religious, religious Zionist faction, um, was Zionist not because of 
messianic aspirations, but despite messianic aspirations, they try to keep messianism out of the concept of a Jewish state. And they argued that, well, in fact, the Jewish state should, in fact, only be established after the coming of the Messiah. But our we have an emergency situation. Jews are being persecuted. Back then, it was in the Russian Empire before the First World War, their pogroms. We need a place for them. And that is interesting. It's interesting because it was the religious Zionist Mizrahi. Many of them were in favor of the Uganda concept. They said, well, that may solve our problem. We have a Jewish state, but it's not in Israel, but we save the Jews and we don't come into conflict with our, you know, with, 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 with our theological uh, issues. This changed dramatically, especially after the Six-Day War in 67, uh, where uh, the land of Israel became the central element, especially for the uh, Zionist religious faction. Uh, at the other polls, we usually identify uh, secular Israeli Jews. And uh, reading your book, I was reminded, I guess, uh, very clearly in the forefront of this uh, discussion is uh, the rhetorical question thrown at Herzl by Ahad Am with the publication of uh, Altneuland, uh, what is exactly Jewish about your state? So uh, reading about uh, secular Israeli Jews and the horizon that at least in Rivlin's uh, 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 speech is being drawn, the question that I would want to ask you is, uh, what is the meaning of Israel's Jewish identity uh, in this context, the context of uh, Israeli secularism? Yeah, sure. If we go back to Herzl as the founding father, who every political faction considers um, their ancestor in a way, uh, it seems that many of them either didn't read Herzl or really misread him. And in fact, interesting source is uh, a book Shimon Peres wrote in the late 1990s, where he might travels with with Herzl through uh, through Israel. So he takes an imaginary Herzl and travels through Israel and uh, writes a new Alt Neuland. Uh, and Her- and Paris says, well, I actually never read Alt Neuland. And if, Her- if Paris didn't read it, I assume most politicians and probably most Israelis, of course, did not read it, although it's a fun uh, book to read, I must say. But if you look at Herzl, you're right. There is really very, very little Jewish content in this in his imaginary, uh, he didn't call it Israel. He didn't. Uh, he, he called it. In fact, he often used the term seven-hour land" because he thought it would be a seven-hour workday. Uh, and this is not a particularly Jewish concept, as many other things. He thought it would. This, you know, the Jew, the state of the Jews, as he called it, would include the best of European what European civilization has to offer. Europe, I mean, French operas, English uh, boarding schools, he said, and of course, Viennese coffee houses. Well, if you go to Tel Aviv today, uh, much of that fact is there. The only difference is, is Herzl that uh, he thought there would no Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew would not be spoken. He himself didn't know Hebrew. He thought it would be German and French and, and uh, the all the European, as he thought, cultured languages. So there was a concept of a state of the Jews, which would be a an idealized Europe transformed 
and taken into the Middle East. Um, that is one concept. The other concept growing out of Chada'am and cultural Zionism is also that of a secular Israel, but one which has decidedly Jewish values, even, they've, even if they've secularized, based mainly on the Hebrew language and Hebrew culture. And I would say that secular Israel today, and then, of course, we look at Tel Aviv, is a mixture of both. Uh, we have the Hebrew culture and, and, and Hebrew language revived, and the fact that today around the world we have about maybe around even almost 10 million speakers of people who speak Hebrew are able to speak Hebrew in their everyday life is something Herzl could not have envisioned and didn't even wish for. Uh, at the same time, we have a society which is also, um, in a way, brought the, many of the Western values, European or American, uh, is you know what would be called today um, the startup nation, is leading place in high tech industry. Herzl would have loved that because he loved modern technology. Do you think it's fair to judge Israel against the Herzlian utopia? Is it uh, a productive exercise? I think we have to be very careful. Herzl lived 120 years ago, and people often ask, what would Herzl think today? And of course, we don't know who Herzl would be today um, after the Holocaust, which even he as a pessimist when it came to the Jewish future in Europe, even a pessimist like him, of course, never could have and, or did envision uh, the ultimate catastrophe, the Shoah, the Holocaust, and that that would be, in a way, um, part of the creation story of this Jewish state. So it is hard for us, and I say this as a historian, who we know today what happened in the 115 years after his death. And, um, and, and, and we were not able to judge. I think the same, if I may say, is true about others. Jabotinsky, for example. Um, I, I thought one of the most interesting uh, thinkers because he combined nationalism and liberalism. And I think Justice Paris <clears throat> said he's never read uh, he's never read Old Newland by Herzl until the 1990s. I think many leaders of the Likud Party are, let's say, are very selective in what they have read by Jabotinsky, even though the big portrait of Jabotinsky hangs in their offices. If you look at his last book, it's very a very interesting book. It's called it's it's about the war and the Jews. And it's published in 1940, the year he died. And he has almost like a draft constitution of the future state in there. One of the sentences is if there is a Jewish prime minister, there should be a vice prime minister who is an Arab. And he even says if there is an Arab prime minister, which he envisions too, there should be a <clears throat> Jewish vice prime minister. Now, again, would he say that today? We don't know. That was 1940. It was really just when the Holocaust started. He did not know what was going to happen. He did not know exactly what was going to happen with the Arab population. And, of course, he envisioned a large state, which included um, today's Israel plus of course, West Bank and Jordan. So it's a different concept, but I think it is worth looking um, for politicians today a little bit when you know when you have and you 
recall their memory when you have their portraits hanging, um, it doesn't hurt to know a little bit more of what they have actually said. Yes, you know, and this goes directly back to this question of writing a history of an idea and uh, its political embodiment. There's this temptation to look at uh, Israeli politics through an ideological lens and then to realize, as you just noted, that uh, many of the ideological parties or the representatives do not uh, really obey any of the ideological dictates that they uh, supposedly adhere to. And then there's the other temptation to just see everything as real politics, as party politics, as uh, interested manipulation of reality, and then to judge history along these lines. Do you think there's a way, uh, a middle way between these two poles, or are we always to be tempted to either look at it ideologically or politically? I, I think there's always a middle way, and I think uh, politicians usually go for real politics, but they also evoke the authority of a Herzl, of a Jabotinsky, of a Ben-Gurion. And I think once you do that, um, it is worthwhile being informed. I'm not saying every politician should be a historian, although, you know, uh, present prime minister's father was a historian. So he grew up at least in the spirit of the history. Um, I think it is worth um, not using or misusing is the better term in that case, misusing history and, and, and the heroes you have. And, and, and it's only possible that both parties, let's say, have Herzl as a hero because they read him very differently. So there is always a middle way, and I, I am certainly not a politician, so I'm not giving, you know, um, um, it's thought I'm not giving uh, advice to the um, to, to to politicians. Uh, only when it comes to history and the historical image, then I think we as historians uh, have the right to say, well, I mean, maybe it wasn't exactly like that. So, um, as a historian, when you tell the story of contemporary Israel, the last part of your book deals with what you call global Israel. Uh, I think global is, uh, it must be one of the most uh, hyped words in, in contemporary discourse. Uh, but the, the title does sound apt. Um, so can you maybe explain what is uh, encapsulated in global Israel? Right. So I try to end the book on a little maybe unexpected note. And one of the uh, interesting phenomena today is that there is something like a global Israeli community, and I see it in both ways, those who might be future Israeli citizens and those who were past Israeli citizens. When Herzl wrote his you know, foundational works on what would later become a Jewish state, he clearly envisioned that there would be Jews who would live in this Jewish state or state of the Jews, as he called it. And the others who would stay behind would totally, completely assimilate and cease to be Jews within a few generations. So there would, all Jews would be, in a way, collected in the Jewish state. And now we have a certain almost ironical feature. Not only is there still a Jewish diaspora in addition to the Jewish state, and still at least by 2018, the majority of Jews do not live in the state of Israel, although it's close to half of them. Um, 
there is an additional diaspora, which is an Israeli diaspora. <clears throat> Numbers are very hard to know, but it's safe to say that there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis or former Israelis who live in the United States and Europe. And most recently, Berlin seems to be the hotspot for young Israelis to come to live. So that is the one picture, and I'm interested in that, how Israeli culture spreads to different parts of the world, because many of the Israelis keep, in a way, their language and their culture and try to keep some of it, at least, for their children and even grandchildren, next generation. And, of course, some of them might return to Israel. The other side I look at is it's an interesting phenomenon that Israel has become a much more diverse society in many respects. Of course, we have Jewish immigrants from all over the world, but the recent diasporas, I'm not only talking about, of course, the Soviet immigration, but also the Ethiopian immigration, have brought more diversity than before. And there are other groups, and I look a little bit about, at, at them as well, who are either non-Jews or who are, well, let's put it in a way where we would say that their Judaism is at least um, um, uh, not undisputed. And uh, we have millions of people in the world who are who consider themselves descendants of the lost tribes of biblical Israel. Many people smile at that and take, you know, that's, that's you know, it's an exotic chapter. Um, but it's an interesting chapter because many of them are, in fact, waiting to immigrate to Israel. And I think that will be an issue we'll hear more about. Some did, but uh, not, not that many by now. And that will be um, something which faces both the rabbinate in Israel, but also the immigration authorities. Indeed, in, in India and in Africa and, and other parts of the world, where, of course, Israel is also seen as a first world country. And, and I'm also just to, to finish this, I'm also talking in this chapter about non-Jewish Russians and also some of the African refugees uh, which have come to Israel in recent years. So going back to the first part of this uh, global Israel, the exporting or uh, uh, the, uh, I guess, uh, the growth of Israeliness outside of Israel um, sheds an interesting light on how Judaism is developed outside of the world. Uh, how do you see Israeli Judaism when exported to um, non-Israeli Jewish communities? How do you see it influencing uh, the way Judaism itself is understood or practiced? Yeah, it is very interesting because often, especially when you look at the smaller communities, not talking about New York or Los Angeles, um, Israelis are the only, let's put it in quotation mark, experts uh, the only ones who actually know Hebrew in this community or, or, or some of the f very few people who do know Hebrew who are able, for example, and I see this in Europe, who are able to lead um, the prayer service, even if they're not religious, but they really can actually read from the Torah or they can perform certain functions. And that is an interesting combination where secular Israelis become part of religious Jewish life, which they would have never joined in Israel because there is a clear divide between either Orthodox or secular with very few reform and conservative communities. But once they're in Europe or in America, um, they are more 
many of them, not all of them, are more inclined to join a Jewish community, uh, a congregation, maybe because of the education of their children or other reasons. And in, in a way, they then also give often something. They're able to give something to the community. You have now an Israeli-American uh, organization which is basically dedicated to the preservation of Israeli culture uh, in America. And you have circles in Berlin uh, where a Hebrew library in a private home has been opened, where Hebrew schools um, are being planned. So you have um, kind of a preservation of Israeli culture in the diaspora, which in a way interacts with the more traditional Jewish life there. Michael, we've taken uh, too much of your time. Can you maybe tell us in closing what project or projects you are currently working on? So I'm a historian of both Jewish history and Israeli history, and I I'm actually going back uh, for my next project uh, to, to German Jewish history, and I'm writing a book on um, the circumstances of Hitler's rise to power, uh, but I'm looking at his early phase as a politician, and I'm not looking at Hitler, as many others did, but the Jewish life and anti-Semitism around him um, in post-war Germany, and especially Munich, where he lived. Um, which is also an interesting chapter because the first prime minister of Bavaria, uh, um, when it became a republic in 1918, was a, was a Jew. Um, and many of the revolutionaries in this period were Jewish in Germany. And it was in this period, 1919, that Hitler's anti-Semitism also developed. So I'm looking at this very interesting chapter of um, both Jewish life and the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany after the First World War. Sounds like a most interesting project. Professor Michael Brenner, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much.